Horror Podcast this week, we enter Summerland with its star, the great Gemma Arterton, plus the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is still furious about Bob Odenkirk and Ray Seahorn not being nominated for Emmys for Better Call Saul. What more do they have to do? What more do they have to do? It's okay, Chris. It's okay, Chris. Calm, calm. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Emperor Podcast. This week, I'm joined by three, count them, three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Well, actually, two colleagues of such lethal cunning, and one boss of such lethal cunning. We got our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Hello. Good, good, good. Excellent. Then we have the nerd emperor. Is that what you are these days, Again, James Dyer? I object to this emperor thing. I'm, this is not emperor. Good. Supreme pontiff is fine, but emperor will, 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 will you know, okay. work in a bush. Well, here's someone who outranks you all. It is the editor-in-chief of Empire, and soon to be Colossus, bestriding the worlds of magazines and television. It is, of course, Terry White. How are you, Terry? Good. How are you? Wow, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> that was, I'm good, Chris. Oh, good. How are you? I'm hard and heavy. No, different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> very happy to be here. Uh, very happy to have you here. We should explain, of course, um, what exactly... What's been going on, Terry? What's been going on? Since you were last on the podcast, a book has come out. Uh, with uh-huh. your name affixed to it, and uh, now that book is going to be um, telly. Is that is that correct? Fill fill the people in. Pretty much, yes. So uh, my memoir, Coming Undone, came out on July second, um, and somehow, unbelievably, um, not even by me using any contacts because. Why would I? Because I'm just the editor-in-chief of a film magazine and a TV magazine. I am. Um, yeah, somebody <laughs> uh, said they would like to make it into a telly show and those people are bad wolf who are known for uh his dark materials the night of and yeah it's um crazy really 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 insanely crazy see see i i still can't quite get my head around this because i'm not in your book so why would they want to make this i mean i don't quite understand part of the contract is um new final chapter (laughs) <laughs> all about Chris Hewitt. Um, yes. So I was going to open on those, you know, first six months or a year where we didn't like each other, then kind of yeah. move on to the kind of, you know, uh, bit where we tolerated each other. You know, our relationship. <laughs> and then back to the not liking each other. I think, you know, I think there is a classic three arc um, act in our relationship. I'm waiting for the third act, but there's time. Of course, there's of time. course. We there's open time. on Chris, mid-30s, which I was when you when you first met me. Chris, sure, mid-30s. Sure. Handsome, but he doesn't quite know it. Um, oh my God. <laughs> sachets into the room sachets with a body that Sipping a water. Quit. Sipping a water, chewing on some mango. <laughs> Coquettish eyes. Um, <laughs> uh, Wait, you drinking water? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's the least plausible. And eating fruit and eating is absolutely fruit. ridiculous, <laughs> far-fetched nonsense. Yeah, Terry sorry. Wright. I've taken it too He's far. Mars bar wrong. I've I taken mean. it too far. First thing to go with writers, authenticity. I apologise. <laughs> uh, but yes, Terry's book, uh, Coming Undone, is available now in all good and evil uh, bookstores. Uh, highly recommended, of course, and mm-hmm. uh, very, very excited. So what stage are we at? What stage oh, are we at? You haven't read it. Don't I give me that. I haven't read it yet. I no, haven't read it yet. But what, sta- what stage are we at? 
Um, we have, they've bought the option and we're just about to start some development work, which I'll be consulting on. And hopefully, you know, somebody will want to commission a whole series and off we go. Okay. And this is going to be a quiz show. Quiz show. <laughs> I mean, I hadn't considered the quiz show format, but you know, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's got to be something with Strike It Lucky in my book, right? Top, middle or bottom? Top, middle or bottom? Oh, no, that, this could go top very quickly. <laughs> yeah. James is pulling his danger, danger face. <laughs> danger, oh, danger. Oh, good God. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, it's, it's amazing. It's genuinely amazing. Um, are you going to recuse yourself from Pilot TV whenever your TV show comes up? <laughs> yes. Yes. Of course I am. Christ I believe amazing. I should be leading on that one. Yeah. Well, people, somebody said to me, oh, you know, how will you ensure it gets a fair review i was like we have james like we have james james can hate everything and anything so i i expect yeah. no special treatment disappointing lack spaceships. of spaceships yep. yeah <laughs> yes this is not like titanic in space no <laughs> this is a shit six season to the expanse yeah well i look i look forward to those words from James. Oh my god, it's gonna be it's gonna be exciting. It's so exciting. So when that's gonna be that's gonna be like next year maybe or the year after that. Hopefully, yeah. I think we want to move quite quickly. Um so fingers crossed. Oh. Fingers crossed twenty twenty one. All right, okay. Uh, Chris Evans to play me, obviously, but uh, the, the guy from Dorothy. You're, you're not ginger. You're not ginger, but oh, we both went for the same joke. Yeah, no, I, I preempted it. I preempted it, but you know. All right, well, listen, it's good to have you back. Um, and you're going to be back regularly soon, aren't you? You're, 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 this is it. Your, yes, your little so break. It's, it's, a, over. it's just a few weeks break. until my maternity leave is over. Um, and I can do this all day, every day. Hey, Are you as excited as day. I am? I am very excited about that, although I'm busy that day, Terry. Um, right, okay, so we uh, we usually kick things off these days with the, the section that's beloved of the nation. It is, of course, the beloved film fact section, which this week, uh, Patrick from Hamburg at Swishsis, Swishsis on Twitter has suggested calling it Fatal Affaction. Okay. That's for sure. Interesting. So no bunnies will be boiled during the making of this segment, I can assure you. Uh, let me see. James is on a roll. He has won the last two weeks. One was a sympathy win. One was an actual <laughs> genuine win. Uh, so I'm going to ask the reigning champ, Jimbo, to wow us with an incredible fact <gasps> that I don't ideally won't know or haven't heard before is film related, obviously. And then I give a point to the winner, just in case you haven't heard this before. Jimbo. Uh, I have a small, a small fact as a core, as a kind of preface to the main fact and a moose bouche, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, just because I read it this morning and it amused me. And that's, uh, you know, uh, the rise of Skywalker, the, um, Ninth best Star Wars film, uh, <laughs> not not counting the anthology films. Well, the character um, courage and, and battle for Endor. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you remember the scene when the Knights of Ren are about to embark on their assault on Pasana to try and, and trap them down. How remember, can I they're forget it? The corridors. The two comedy stormtroopers standing there. One of them goes, and this is amazing. One of them goes, Knights of Ren, and the other one goes, awesome. Uh, the one who goes, Knights of Ren, is Carl Urban. That's a, that, that's my that's my preface fact for you because he did an interview for the boys recently and he mentioned that he was he was that comedy stormtrooper. So there you go. That has enriched your appreciation of the rise of Skywalker. No end. It really hasn't. Okay. So my main fact uh, today concerns 
John Hughes, and specifically uh, the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which of course they did uh, a reunion thing, not with John Hughes, because he wouldn't have been a great conversationalist on it, but uh, they had, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Josh Gad brought the cast back together, Jesus. and they talked about it, and many, many things came out of this, but one of the things was that John Hughes has always said that he wrote Ferris Bueller's Day Off with uh, Matthew Broderick in mind, he's talked about that a lot, it was his only choice of the film, except that's not true. Even Matthew Broderick says he wasn't the first choice for the film, and lots of other people were considered for this role, so... Among the people considered for the role of Ferris, apparently a young Jim Carrey was talked about for that one, which I think would have been a slightly odd choice. Eric Stoltz says that he was as well. Ashley Michael Hall apparently turned it down. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. apparently also was talked about for that role. I don't know if he was actually offered it. Um, but also, and this kind of weird me out, and again, this is not the fact, but Tom Cruise was considered for that role. And when you consider that Top Gun came out before Ferris Bueller's Day Off, that would have just been weird. Cruise, of course, was 24 when that film came out. But then Broderick was also 24, so I guess it's not that weird. Uh, Alan Ruck, of course, being 30 as a teenager. Um, but none of this is my fact. The fact for this particular <laughs> one is I believe in a meandering path to any destination. So the fact here is that uh, a gentleman who has been in the news a lot recently, a one Johnny Depp, uh, was originally offered the role of Ferris in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but had to turn down the film because he was doing Platoon. So we never got to see that cut of the film where Sloane or one of her friends took a shit on the dashboard of Cameron's dad's car so that's a shame that's something that we will never get to enjoy but uh but he he also turned down apparently johnny depp also turned down uh the main role in speed kenny's role in speed that's another one that he turned down um stephen baldwin apparently turned down that role if you can believe that because he thought it was a little bit too like die hard interesting fact for you there um <laughs> yeah sorry, and sorry, uh, what's your fact What's your that, fact? I'm just, I'm just, this is rambling Johnny Depp facts at this point. I'm, fr I'm freestyling. You, you actively um, try not to win this week. You're trying to throw the competition. It, yes. Why? Why I is feel this? it's important. It's important to balance things out. If you put money so in yourself, with those bookmakers. <laughs> yes, that's it. That's exactly what's happened. Um, what else have I got? Uh, who else? What else have I got? <laughs> What is I think, happening? I think I'm, I'm going to call it here. He was considered for Neo in the Matrix as well. I seem to recall. Time as well. of death for James's fact. You seem to recall. Yes. Well, I'm just. I didn't have time to properly prepare a fact, so I thought I would yes, just. You know, you only have a week's <sighs> notice. In fairness. Yeah. Why would you explaining to death? Facts explaining <laughs> to death. <laughs> James Dyer is a fact yeah. hunt. There is no doubt wow. about that. that. That was. That was okay. Well, there you go. Let's park James's facts for one minute, Terry. Let's come to okay. you. Okay. So my fact, which is short and sweet, James. Thank Christ. Um, and it is about the film when Peggy Sue got married. Uh, and it relates hey. to Kathleen Turner and Nicolas Cage. Are we ready for my quite tedious fact? Bring it. Terry's <laughs> <laughs> quite tedious fact. <laughs> so um, this... Kathleen Turner wrote a book, Send Yourself Roses, um, which was an autobiography or a memoir, one of those things. And yes, there's a difference, James Dyer. And she was talking about Nicolas Cage on set. They famously didn't get on. However, Nicolas Cage ended up suing Kathleen Turner for accusing him of something very specific, so egregious that he didn't think he could let it lie. And that was he claimed that she claimed that he stole a chihuahua. Now, Cage was having none of this. 
took him to court in the UK. Oh, and um, yeah, she wrote, he was arrested twice for drunk driving. And I think, which is probably like a bad thing to put in before a fact, for stealing a dog. He'd come across a chihuahua he liked and stuck it in his jacket, which I'm sure if you know anything about Nicolas Cage, doesn't seem like that much <laughs> of a stretch. Um he, however, got the massive arse on, said it was defamatory and false <laughs> and shouldn't have been published. And Nicolas Cage won and she had to apologise and wow. pay his costs and make a substantial donation to a charity. So there you go. My fact wow. is that Kathleen Turner sued Nicolas Cage. No. Nicolas Cage sued Kathleen <laughs> Turner for saying he stole the chihuahua and won. We must end. never, ever allege on this podcast that Nicolas Cage steals dogs. It's important. Chihuahuas. Specifically chihuahuas, yeah. Mm. Or any dog. Though, oh, your lawyer. chihuahua, is what he would say, <laughs> presumably. That's uh, that's very interesting and sounds legally dangerous as well. So let's see, I'm going to skirt around that one really quickly. <laughs> I double sourced it. I double sourced it, and the, it has it has been reported these that he was he did not do it. And a court of law did side with Nicholas okay. Cage. Uh, yes, a lawyer for the Empire podcast says Nicholas Cage is not steal dogs. Uh, also, but there's a statute of limitations, right, Helen? You're a barrister, you know that you you can you can say stuff about people. Uh, oh no, it, when Chris, they're dead, no, after no. they're dead, after uh, they're dead, yeah. But when then, their career is near death, uh, no, or, no, absolutely okay, not. Just check it. No, Helen. I have an awful feeling I've done this fact before, but uh, I'll let you, you know because obviously I've been keeping track. I'm sure you will, yeah. And then I'll have to come up with something else. Um, my fact is actually about Olivia de Havilland, who's obviously been in the news uh, this week uh, after she died at the age, grand old age of 104 years old, the last surviving principal cast member of Gone with the Wind. Um, but I wanted to talk about her getting her start in the movie business. So she was uh, training to be a teacher. She was about to go to a teacher training college uh, when she took a, a job in community theatre playing Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream. and. Uh, a talent scout saw this community theatre production of A Midsummer Night's Dream and and basically headhunted her and brought her to meet Max Reinhardt, who was the big American theatre impresario of the time, who was putting on his own Midsummer Night's Dream at the Hollywood Bowl at the time. Now, of course, she was not being scouted for the, a big role. Like she was a teenager, she was you know completely inexperienced. She was the second understudy to the role of Hermia. So good role, but second understudy, right? Gloria Stewart of Titanic fame was Hermia in that production. Unfortunately, she hadn't cleared it with Warner Brothers, where she had a film contract after doing The Invisible Man the year before. And they mm -hmm. were like, no, you can't be on stage. We need you for a film. And she went off and did a film. But that's fine, right? It's fine because there's another understudy. There's a first understudy before you get to the second understudy. And the first understudy was Jean Ruverall. So of course, she was ready to step into the role, except she got offered a film called It's a Gift with W.C. Fields, where she was going to be starring opposite him. And uh, and the role of Hermia, starring role in A Midsummer Night's Dream at the Hollywood Bowl, then fell to the very young, completely inexperienced Olivia de Havilland. Um, and so when Max Reinhardt uh, then came to make a movie of the same play, mm -hmm. he naturally brought... Naturally. 
the same cast with him. And uh, Olivia de Havilland got her start in movies as a result. Now, I have to say, she was she was not apparently that thrilled about it at the time. Like, she was quite reluctant to sign a seven-year contract, which was a condition of doing this film. And she was basically talked into it by Reinhardt. He's like, it's going to be awesome. You can still be a teacher later. Everything will be fine. And she was like, fine, I guess I'll be a Hollywood star. And that's how it went. But, um, but yeah, that's how she got her job because two other people ahead of her in a theatre production, got hired for other things first. All right, Helen. So you would say that she, Olivia, to have a landed on her feet. Hey, I, I wouldn't, but I mean, you should. You probably <laughs> yes. should. Um, uh, are you suggesting that she in some way arranged for the other two people to drop out in order to get her big break? Is that what you're I, implying? I mean, honestly, I did double check that neither of them was dead um, <laughs> before telling you off. this fact. Yeah, but, but they both had... Um, film careers and of course in Gloria Stewart's case that film career lasted up up until the end of the 90s so Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. she survived her encounter all right okay so yes I I I don't think we can we can accuse the teenage Olivia de Havilland of offing anyone to get her big break no of course especially since as I say she didn't want it yeah so just to in 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 summary just to sum up uh James I don't even know what that fact was (laughs) I it was uh sort of morass of facts it was facts fighting one another I didn't understand it um, it was misdirection. It was misdirection. Uh, I don't think you had a fact. I bombarded you with loads of semi-facts to make yes. up for the fact that there was no actual fact. The Carl Urban thing was actually vaguely interesting. You might have went for that. Yeah, but um, who was the Too other late. stormtrooper? No. The other stormtrooper, Keith. <laughs> Keith Urban. Yeah, Keith Urban. Nicole Kidman's yes. husband. <clears throat> Helen's fact was was fine, but you know it did quite boring. Let's be honest. It, it, it quite. Oh my God. <laughs> it was. It was a little dull. It was a little dull. No one died. No one, no one got sucked off. There was none. None of you know, Helen's usual. You know, Helen, Helen's facts <laughs> usually have some sort of sexiness or murder, or both, and none of that happened in your facts. So I'm, I'm, oh, okay. All right, prepare yourself for William Desmond Taylor next week. All right. Oh, no, not William Desmond Taylor. <laughs> That's right. Oh, shit. Bring out the big guns now. I think Terry's had a dog and Nick Cage, yeah. which under yeah. certain bylaws means I think she wins by default. Yes, if yeah, you, if you look at the uh, the laws of this this game, then yes, automatically Nicholas Cage and a dog. Then Terry wins. Well done, Terry. Yay! Uh, Ter- Yay! Terry gets a point. Well done. The rotating fourth chair gets yet another point. Please don't fire me. Um, is uh, basically the point of all this. But yes, well done, everybody. That was the fact section, which this week was called Fatal Affection. Oh. Now let's head straight into the listener question, which this week came to me via a DM on Twitter from uh, at Pete Kuru. Pete Kuru, K-U-R-U, who simply says, we're opening a British rival for Universal Studios. And that got me all kinds of excited initially because I thought it was a job offer, but no, it turned out just to be a tweet. Um, And he asks, which British films get their own rides? (laughs) So let's just imagine the shittest, most depressing theme park in history what are we populating? Even more so than <laughs> uh, what? What are we populating this theme park with, Terry? Well, so we were we began this chat on WhatsApp, and um, my mind immediately went to um, you know classic great British films like Scum. So the ride <laughs> oh, is the ride is the Scum, and you go in. 
and there's a line of men holding socks with snooker balls in them that fire at you from both sides uh-huh. while over the speakers somebody screams who's the daddy now <laughs> so, so is this like um a saw type experience where it's like one of those haunted house type things you go in yes. this isn't a roller coaster yes. necessarily no this is like that you walk through yourself you are part <laughs> of the ride your body is part of the ride the dead man's shoes uh-huh. where you take a bucket full of acid and um, go around a council house but that's been like boobied with traps and foes a bit boobied like boobied with um, traps that's I not like that a phrase boobied with traps that's an amazing phrase oh my god phrase. I used boobied did I just use boobied as a verb you did oh my god I'm all for boobied. it Boobied with traps. <laughs> and um, and it's all trippy and it's a bit like Home Alone, um, <laughs> but really dark and really trippy version. Yes. Um, and then I was thinking about the train spotting and it's like a water rapids ride, uh-huh. but it's like a giant toilet. Yes. Um, oh, wow. And you get sucked in and you're, you know. Yeah. Um, I was thinking you could, you could be like a toilet duck. And you could be in the toilet. The toilet is the ra- is the water ride, and then you're going woo woo round and round, uh-huh. and getting sucked in. And the water's been made uh, to be brown, and then there could be like fake syringes. I don't think at no. you, I don't like- think they should be fake. I think you should be literally pelted with shit and and syringes. Um. I mean, health and safety is, is going to have a nightmare with some of these, I'll be honest. Like, this let's is, be, let's yeah. be honest, Helen, this As park lawyer, is opening Chris. for one day. This is a, <laughs> this is a one day, just, you know, all in blowout. Just, just Best absolutely go for it. Yeah. Last <laughs> day of your life. <laughs> last day of your life. I was, I was really struggling. That's our promise. <laughs> <laughs> Tagline, that's our promise. The best and last day of your life. Absolutely. I've long wanted to have a theme park where, you know, you're on a roller coaster and you get on that roller coaster knowing that at some point one seat at random will eject you <laughs> and you don't have a parachute. But it's the best roller coaster in the world. It's better than anything you've ever been on. And do you take that do you take do you take that trade off? Do you take that risk going on a roller coaster knowing that this could be the best ninety seconds of your life or could be the last forty five seconds of your life? Actually, <laughs> probably another forty five seconds for you to like die from your injuries, I would say. Mm-hmm. But you know, do do you do you do that? Do you go on that ride? No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And the Rorschach test of that question has just elicited two very, very different answers. I, I love it. Jimbo, you're, you're, you're standing very quiet at the moment. What have you got? What have I got in general? Um, oh, God. I mean, I'd quite like to see a kind of a lock stock ride where Vinnie Jones kind of slams your head repeatedly in a car door. <laughs> That'd be quite fun. Um, Again, you know, and then just, you go for like, a nice spot of lunch guys. at the layer cake, perhaps. I don't know. Water rides could be fun, like an atonement sort of World War II underground platform themed water ride where you uh-huh. get drowned uh, during the Blitz. That could be fun. Uh, and in between is Flume, where you are chased down the Flume <laughs> by a rogue turd. That could be good. That could be good. I, I can see. Turd. I can see real yeah. crossover potential with the world's worst toilet from the Transpotting ride <laughs> and this in betweeners two ride. Somehow they yeah. can intersect. I think that'd be absolutely tremendous. If we that'd just station the whole park near a sewage works, so we have ample access. That'd well, that be, makes sense. That'd be brilliant. And perhaps like a My Name is Joe interactive ride where you just sit in your car and Peter Mullen comes over and paints it while yelling at you through the window. <laughs> that could work. 
So are we getting these people to turn up, given that this is like a one-day-only theme park, <laughs> are we getting Paddy Considine and Peter Mullen and Ray Winston to hit you in the face with a, a sock full of snooker balls? Sure. Curse season two hasn't started filming yet, so Mullen's got a window in his schedule. <laughs> Authenticity is key. Absolutely. Oh, I'm, I am absolutely all for this. It's going to be amazing. Um, Helen, do you have any uh, any ideas? I mean, we've been very short on actual roller coasters so far. There are lots of experiences. Um, it's a very experiential yeah. theme park so far. Well, I, 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 I tried with roller coasters, so I have, a, I have a few ideas. I mean, it is really hard to get away from the incredibly depressing rides. Like, I thought Threads would be an amazing <laughs> oh ride, where they basically they, they shine a really bright light at you and then most of you die. Um, that would be the Threads <laughs> ride. You get to piss yourself. I was, But I genuinely did try and, f- f- and think really, really hard about, like, slightly more upbeat British British rides. So uh, the Chariots of Fire, um, admittedly, it's basically a, a run on a beach, but it's you don't die, probably, unless you have a heart attack. So that's already better than most of the suggestions so far. Um, I thought that Bridget jo- Jones could be an actual ride of some sort. So the harness would be a pair of granny pants that you'd have to like <laughs> put on. Um, but instead of like drops on this ride, there'd be just really really cringeworthy moments of some kind. I'm not quite sure how you'd make everybody cringe, but that would be what you would do. Um, the four r- weddings Terrible ride jumpers. would basically be a champagne downing competition. Uh-huh. But then at the end, you get drenched and you have to declare your love to whoever's sitting next to you. What about the funeral part? There's got to be a funeral part, right? I mean, or is this my, I feel like this is you've my got idea that covered on every again. other ride in the park, though, don't you? <laughs> it's I mean, basically four you know, funerals and a wedding. <laughs> yeah, if a bunch of you, if a bunch of you go to this park, like there's going to be a funeral, so it's fine. Um, this is true. But there is one bright spark. There is one good thing in this park, and that is the Paddington log ride. Guys, come on, Aww. that's what you do. You get in a bath and you go down some stairs. That's what you want to be doing. <laughs> that's it, isn't it? And then there's isn't like the, at, at the end, you get a marmalade sandwich and a hug. You get a really and big a hug. hug. And then a bear comes out and gives you a hard stare. It's it's <laughs> glorious. Um, you know, you could do all sorts of stuff, right? You could have, you know, a bond lends itself very nicely to to roller coaster rides, right? Mm. You know, okay. so you could have you could have you could have a straight up bond roller coaster, um, and then you could have a slightly more ironic bond roller coaster with lots of ejector seats and uh, and sexism. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> you could have a, all you, the women <laughs> are given a skimpy um, evening gown to uh, change into before they're they're granted permission to board. <laughs> Absolutely, the long Good Friday, where it ends with you getting into a, a, a taxi <laughs> to be held at gunpoint by Pierce Brosnan, who would of course be available. Uh, I think that'd be a lot of fun. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to trying to think about actual rides, actual rides. So you can have, for example, the I Daniel Blake, where mm-hmm. it's the best roller coaster in the world, but you never get onto it because you just queue for ages and ages and ages. And every time you think you're about to get onto it, someone comes up to you and goes, actually, you don't have the right bit of paperwork. And they send you back to the beginning of the queue again. And then you have to queue for ages until eventually you die of a heart attack, penniless and alone. I mean, spoilers, I guess. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I mean, taste, I, I guess. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, also, metaphorically, is he really trying to get on the best ride in the world? Is that how no, we're describing that? No, he's trying to get on a ride. Yeah. yeah. Just, just any ride would be fine. Any ride. Yeah. Any ride is fine. But, you know, you could have the Withnail and I where you go on holiday by mistake. And then it's the Paddington gift store that just sells nothing but marmalade sandwiches and marmalade drinks. And, you know, they'd be better than that effing butterbeer they sell at the uh, the Harry Potter tour which is just the worst 
It's the best. What are you talking about? Really? I you think? Many, many. I went to the opening of that when it was, you know, free, and I may have drunk many, many cups of it. Uh, it also comes in two variations: a slushy version and then a standard beverage version. No, not good. Terry, have you ever, have you ever had butter beer? Never. Well, ended that one. Um, <laughs> it's very much. <rich. laughs> Any other rides in this incredible theme park that I would never, ever, ever go to? <laughs> I'm trying. I th- there f- it feels like there should be some kind of drop ride, right? Maybe that would be the, I don't know, the golden eye jumping off the dam, um, right? You know, there has to be something where you get hold oh, up and that'd it just be drops. Good. So yes. would that be the would that be the golden eye ride? I hate I those know. rides. I can't deal with that. I can do like roller coasters really easily, haunted houses, all that stuff. I cannot do the vertical drop ones. They j- no. Oh, I love them. I can't. I can't. My, my kryptonite my is anything that spins. I, I one of those, and I am just sick for a day and a half. I just can't be. Oh, well, the ones like the teacups. Those yeah. fucking. Te- oh, I, I, I hate the teacups. Cannot. I cannot handle That's teacups. A twats ride if ever there were one. Oh. Uh, can't stand them. Oh, James, what I would give to see you on the fucking teacups. Oh my god. Empire Day out. Yay. Yeah. Right. To to the teacups. What about in the loop, the loop? Where you huh. get on a roller coaster and it has 10 loops and at the height of each one, at the apex of each loop, Malcolm Tucker calls you a bangly bang. I mean, uh, from a health and safety point of view, it's a lot better than, than most of the other ones we've had so far. I was still on that ride. One that's just popped into my head is you could have a wrong trousers ride, a Wallace and Gromit wrong trousers ride, where the track is being laid <gasps> yes. as you go. Now, you would probably die again on this ride, I have to say, but that would be fun. Don't you think that'd be fun? Is it, hang on, do you have to lay the track like in the like in the, the cartoon? Yes, I'm afraid you have to. You know, so the person in the front seat has to lay the track as yes, they go. Yes, you have to. The person in the front seat has to lay the track as they go, which means that you're probably going to die. But what a way to go. What a way to go. It'd be amazing. And then, of course, at the end of the day, when you've, you know, you've been to the, the exit through the gift shop, gift shop, and you've, you know, you've, you've gone to the, the, the Paddington um, restaurant and you've had some marmalade beer and you've you've you know you've been in several rides and you've you've been on the I Daniel Blake but you've managed to survive and you've you've got through the day intact and you know you're bludgeoned with snooker balls all sorts of stuff. At the end of the day, what better way to finish off your trip than with a nice go on the Wicker Man? Um, again, he- health and safety, Chris. He- he- you sign a waiver safety. before you get into the park, Helen. Oh God! I, oh I, Christ! I don't think there is a oh, way for strong Christ. enough in the world. It'd be amazing. It'd be amazing. But then, as a sort of special twist, after that, then someone sticks a bee helmet on you and makes you go through that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Not a British film, James. Not a British film. Unbelievable. Uh, anyway, now we've bludgeoned that question into the ground. Uh, that is it for this week's listener question. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast and treated with the respect it deserves, as at Pete Kuru found to his cost. You, you can get in touch with us via a number of methods, but really the best way at the moment in the middle of a pandemic is Twitter. Uh, you can slide into my DMs. I'm at Chris Hewitt, or you can just, you know, reply to one of my tweets or wait for me every Thursday, although we didn't do it this Thursday, uh, to uh, send out a panicked call for questions. Uh, we're also on email as podcast at empireonline.com or we're on Facebook as well, but yeah, it's Twitter. Twitter is where it's at. 
time now for our guest this week, returning to the podcast, I believe, I think she's been on the podcast before, is the wonderful Gemma Arterton, who is the star of this week's Summerland, which is a film set in World War II in which her character is sent a young evacuee. Uh, it's a written and directed by Jessica Swale, uh, who has formed an excellent partnership creatively with Arterton over the last few years. And as I discovered when I spoke to Gemma over Zoom, the dreaded Zoom, dun, 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 the other week is just the beginning for them. Here we go. Me talking to Gemma Arterton. Do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast in lockdown, of course, by the star of Summerland, Gemma Artisan. How are you, Gemma? Hi, I'm well, thanks. You know, just at home. <laughs> yeah, precisely, at home, locked down. This is, I mean, we were just talking about this before before we started, but this is weird. I mean, we, I've, I've done mm. video chats and, and, and whatnot all the way through lockdown, but, you know, ordinarily, I'd be in a hotel room and you'd be brought into the hotel room and then you'd be brought into another hotel room and there'd be another journalist asking the same questions. But now you don't have to leave. This is, this is weird, isn't it? It, it is weird, but I, I, I bet it's going to become the norm to a certain extent. And in a weird way, what I do enjoy is that I don't have to move <laughs> and I sit on my sofa and I'm wearing, I'm, you know, pajamas from the bottom down. No, I'm not. I, I am wearing <laughs> normal clothes today. I made an effort. But, you know, there's something to be said that, you know, I'm comfortable at least. But it's, I do miss the sort of seeing people in the flesh. That's, yeah. You know. Yeah. But, but has it, relatively speaking, has it otherwise been a normal junket experience for you as in, Everyone's asking you the same questions. As it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I just keep repeating myself. Um, no, I, yeah, I, I did a junket the other day for um, the Kingsman. So oh, yeah. like a, a, that was a big, you know, obviously a big junket. And it, I was very impressed. The whole thing went really smoothly. Um, it, yeah, it was... And I, maybe the journalists were more relaxed as well. I don't know. Um, it's because they're um, all wearing pajamas. It's because they are yeah. wearing pajamas. You know they And they're are. not stressed out because they had to travel in and, you know, have been in, sat in a holding room for two hours before they get to speak to you. I don't know. But it was a <laughs> pleasant experience. But how, how, you, how have you been coping with, with lockdown? Yeah, I, you know, it's, um, I'm a very sort of busy, sociable person usually. So that's been... Yeah. A change but actually a, a good one I've been surprisingly um, quite productive I've got a production company and mm -hmm. there's a lot of production stuff is development and can be quite tedious and you have to have a lot of time to do it and we've been really focusing on that so we have four five five productions that we've been working on Amazing. I've been I've been writing actually writing with Jessica Swale who wrote and directed um, Summerland we've been doing our own next project together. So that's been a first for me. And, you know, just walking the dog and cooking and stuff. Um, you know, <laughs> that's my life. Usual stuff, the usual stuff. And that's, that's great yeah. you're, you're productive because, uh, you know, early on when I was speaking to some actors, they were banging their heads against a wall a little bit because there, there's a need to create, isn't there? And then when that suddenly snatched away from you, it can be hard to fill that void. I think that's why I got into production from, you know, I've been doing it, well, I think since 2013, because I, I needed to do something else. I couldn't just wait for the agent to call and say, here's a job. Mm. I needed to be more involved creatively in the inception of a project. And um, 
otherwise gosh you know I think there's more there's more I felt like there was more to offer more to say more to do and so thank goodness I had that um in lockdown because I've really been able to focus on that and but I think you know it'd be interesting to see what people have done what the outcome of lockdown is in terms of the arts I think there will be a lot more material I know a lot of my friends that are actors have started writing and for the first time just because they felt like what what can I do you know and that's exciting I mean Mm, but also scary right it's a a scary thing the blank page and that you know getting something out there on, on the page for the first time yeah, or maybe you, maybe you but, just took it like a duck to water. I, I don't know. Well, this thing that I'm writing with Jess Mayo is an adaptation of a book. So we had um, the book to go off, um, but it still is a daunting experience just writing. But actually, there's so, so much power in writing. I mean, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> you can <laughs> say whatever you want. Whereas with acting, you know, usually you've got to serve something. You have to serve the script. You have to serve the narrative. Whereas when you're writing, you don't have to serve anyone. You can just go for it. <laughs> except, <laughs> except studios tend to frown if you write too many dinosaurs in. They, they tend to go, well, in my experience, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they tend to go, <laughs> yeah, this yeah, is an just, intimate drama. Just it doesn't need the dinosaurs. <laughs> Some dinosaurs, Chris. Just cut the dinosaurs, Chris. I was like, no, the dinosaur needs to be dinosaurs. Um, but that's, that's what sort of what sort of actor have you been over the years, Gemma? You know, in, in terms of working with directors and working with writers on set, are you are you someone who interrogates every line, or do you see the text as as a sacred in a way? Are, are you do you have alts? Do you have suggestions? What, what sort of person are you on set? I have deep admiration for writers. I always have. So for me the text unless it's I wouldn't do it well I have done some pretty awful things but nowadays (laughs) I I wouldn't and then you know nowadays I wouldn't do something unless I felt like it was worthy writing or if I did then I probably wouldn't care so much about interrogating the text (laughs) if I didn't think it was worthy writing I'd just give up but um no I think I've always felt I think it's something that we're taught as well um at drama school you know, you go to the text, you bring yourself to the character, to what is written on the page. I've always found it quite arrogant for it to be the other way around. Um, Even though as an actor, you obviously, if something doesn't feel right, you can work on that. And and working with a writer, writer-director is the dream Mm. because then you can kind of work on it together in the moment on set. Mm. Um, But I, I, you know, I, I have you know, sometimes worked with people that really interrogate the text and are quite disrespectful to the writer. So we'll cut stuff right there and then on. And it's just, I think, very disrespectful. So I've always endeavoured to work with the writer um, uh, before doing that or find a way to make a compromise because without writers, we would be nowhere as artists so you have to give them respect but it is interesting as well because there is a question of of authorship over a character and i imagine as an actor after a while after a while of rehearsals or after a while of playing a character you know you maybe feel as much ownership over that character as the writer does or the director does and so you have 
suddenly that license to go, actually, I don't think they would say that or do that in this circumstance, even though that's what you wrote months ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there absolutely are times when that, of course, happens. And you, in my, but my way of dealing with it is to talk to people about it in a constructive way, in a respectful way. Um, and usually like someone like Jess totally gets that because she has worked with actors forever in the theatre mm. and, um, and, and is really up for it. If you have anything to say, she will listen to it and change it. And she's a very incredibly one of the most collaborative people I've ever, ever worked with. Um, so ideally you'd be in a situation where you can offer that up to someone and um, to a writer or director and they'll go, yeah, and they'll understand that you don't, that doesn't feel right. Or maybe there's a different way of doing it. And, um, and I love as well, like being in that situation and being able to kind of work it out. Mm. Um, but you're right. Um, it's different. It's different when you're doing a play because you're not allowed to change what someone like Shakespeare wrote or Ibsen um, even though you would never, you, well, I think really amazing writing, you never, ever understand the character that you're playing and you're always journeying to it. You're always on the search oh. to, to actually serve the character to go, hang on, how, how can I really embody that character? And you, you know, there's characters that I've played where I've, especially, you know, Ibsen, who I love as a playwright, yeah. where you just, you don't think you ever quite reached it. You want to go back to it again to kind of keep going. That's how good the writing is. That's interesting. Even night after night, you don't get yeah. to that, that point of, know, of knowing the character inside out. Yeah. Because when you live in your life, how can you be, even when you're a person, even if you're married to someone, you live with them every single day and you're with them, you can't know them really. And you can't yeah. even know yourself. So a good writer will give you the option. Like, well, we'll I think that's something that I would always look for, but it's, it's quite rare to find. By the way, if, if Ibsen or Shakespeare were around these days, uh, it'd be interesting wouldn't it, to have no, you know, conversations with them. Hey, Bill, Bill, if I can call you Bill, I've got, I've got a few notes. To be or not to be, does that make sense? What did you mean there? Would my character say that though? I don't think yeah. they'd say that. Also, they talk, they talk very funny. I mean, can we just... Why do they talk funny? People <laughs> yeah. don't speak like that anymore. <laughs> Get your head out of your arse, Shakespeare. Um, but, uh, but your relationship with Jessica Swell, as you, as you mentioned, it started on the stage. I mean, was it um, with, with Nell Gwynn? And um, uh, was it love at first sight for you guys you know, from, a, from a, a creative point of view? Yeah, I guess I was actually quite um, intimidated by Jess when I first met her. She probably doesn't know this, but she, I took over from Gugu and Bartha Roar, um, who's in Summerland. Mm-hmm. Um, she originated the role of Nell and it was a big success. Mm-hmm. And then um, I took over when it went to the West End and I was a bit nervous. I mean, I was like, oh, I don't want to be the person stepping in and, you know, doing this an injustice and... I remember coming into the rehearsal on the first day when I first met Jess. I just got off a flight from New Zealand. I was so jet lagged and sat down to do the table read and Jess was there. And, um, and she, and you know, I was intimidated, but then I just really wanted to serve. I really wanted her to feel like I was doing the play justice. It's a very good play. Mm-hmm. And then, so there was this respect there. And then we became friends, um, 
I learned that she was really fun and lovely. And um, since then, we've worked together. Well, we've made three things together and now we're working on another thing together. So it feels like it's a real partnership that we've created, created partnership. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And, and Summerland is, is, is really lovely as well. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful role for you. Because not to give too much away, but you have such a you have such a a, a great introduction. Uh, Alice, your character is very Grinchy, in a, yeah. in a wonderful in a wonderful way. <laughs> She's no time for anybody or anything, um, and that must be that must be a lot of fun to play, and, and obviously a, a transformation that that occurs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, gosh, I uh, I'd love to be a bit more like Alice because she really. <laughs> She really, I mean, there's reasons why she is so cantankerous yeah. and difficult and she's shut herself away from society and she actually makes herself difficult so that people won't come up to her. And mm. you're right, I've not heard her being described as Grinchy and that's exactly right. And poor Grinch, there's reasons why the Grinch is the way he is. Yeah. Um, same with Alice. <laughs> and as we learn, you know, there's a lot of loneliness there and heartache and loss and grief and all those things underneath um and it was a great opportunity for me to show that side of me because I can be a complete Grinch at times as well and uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh um we, we, all and can. I, we all can we all can we yeah. all with no coffee in the morning and then you know <laughs> I fired four people this morning just for oh. just for shits and giggles they don't even work for me I, I just fired them <laughs> That relationship, I think, is... out that have run out of battery on set, <laughs> lockdown stuff. Welcome to the new world. <laughs> Can you define the working relationship with, with Jess Whale? How do you guys work together? Um, and how did, they, how did they come about that you started writing together, actually? Was it as a result of this? Um, so the writing thing came from... I can't really speak about the project, but I mm. ha- had my eye... I got on a book for many, many years that I'm obsessed with and which you can't name presumably no not yet but okay um, and we were looking for a writer that had that could do massive epic and period and funny <laughs> and with a political message and that's basically just well all over and um I suggested her as a writer and then she came on and she said well I only want to do this if you collaborate with me as a writer and I thought well I've never written before the way it works at the moment is <laughs> I explain my thoughts and it's quite a weird piece, quite out there. It's very surreal. Um, and she sort of, she, she clarifies, she writes them down. So I sort of feel a little bit like a kind of Don or something. <laughs> I just sit there and, and I go, yeah, and then this happens and then this and this. And then she just writes it down in some sort of cohesive way. But she, we also collaborate, and she has one of she's brilliant at character and um, storytelling and, and and structure, which is something that I'm just not good at at all. Structure um, mm. and making something a bit commercial, which is not in my bones. So um, something that Jess is good at, and uh, so we, we are a good little partnership, I think. And anyway, working with her on this, we have different sort of modes because we're best friends as well. So we have, we have friend mode where we go out and drink cocktails and, and ride our bikes around the countryside and stuff. Then we have... Sounds dangerous, actually. If you're drinking <laughs> cocktails then riding your bikes, oh, that's, that's bad. 
a separate occasion. Um, then we have writing mode, which is different. And then we have on set mode, which is a very different because when she's directing, obviously she's got lots of other things to think about and other people to think about. And so I kind of step away and, and also it's not appropriate for us to be in best friend mode um, because we have to be professional. And um, so that was interesting when we were shooting, sort of having to put a lid on best friend mode and, um, and not be silly and not chat codes, you know, um, which is nice to know that you can just do that and not, um, mm. it's not, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a big deal, you know? Yeah. So, but obviously it's great because there's a shorthand and um, I know what she wants. She had a lot of things to think about, especially with ch directing children. So it was nice to, for her to just know that I was going to get on with it and um, it was okay. You know, she didn't have to worry about me that much, not that much. <laughs> as you mentioned there uh, Gugu is also in this movie so did you at any point on set do Julie Nell Gwynn's <laughs> do you know what we didn't and we should have what a missed opportunity um, we should have done one of the songs from Nell Gwynn or something um, <laughs> no I, I don't know we just we just I guess because both of us played her and then you know now it's getting made into a film and um, and it was sort of like we we all both had our time with that part, and then we left that part, and that's what happens. But it was mm. it was so nice working with her as well. I've always wanted to work with her, and um, and uh, it was just a joy. She was just she's she is a really joyful person that brings a lot of energy and enthusiasm and optimism to the set. Unlike me, who seems to be a bit more serious, she is. Really sunshine, ray of sunshine. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, it's a missed opportunity, but in, listen, you can always work together again on this thing you're writing with Jess. That'd be fun. I recommend that. And then you do your Julie Nell Gwynn's. Everyone's happy. Everybody wins. Yeah. That's my suggestion. Yeah, this is a great suggestion. Yeah. If it doesn't, if it doesn't happen, frankly, I'll be furious. And also, one more suggestion, Gemma, if you, if I may, um, dinosaurs put dinosaurs in your script. Okay, I'll do that. I'll find a way. They could have had a dinosaur in Summerland, to be honest, like a <laughs> flight flying in the air, you know, could could have happened. Yeah, more more dinosaurs, that's what I say. <laughs> uh, and on that note, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, stay safe in lockdown. You Thanks too. a lot. Take care now. Cheers. Okay, so that was Gemma Artisan, and we will be discussing Summerland later in the show in the reviews section. But for now, it is time to delve into this week's movie news. And I think we've already mentioned Olivia de Havilland, and there's only one place to start, really. And that is with the passing of an absolute legend at 104 years of age. Double Oscar winner. What a loss. Yeah, she's one of those people you just kind of thought might hang around forever. Um, but she was a heck of an actress um, back in her day. Obviously, you know, Gone with the Wind is the one that she's remembered for. She was about the only woman in Hollywood who didn't go for Scarlett O'Hara. Obviously, the the name was irresistible. Um, but she went for mm -hmm. she went for Melanie Sykes instead. She saw that she could do something with that part, um, and she she knocked it out of the park. Um, she was, uh, I think misused in her first years on her Warner Brothers contract. Um, they basically found out that she worked pretty well as a love interest to Errol Flynn and just cast her as that. 
and nothing else. She just played these kind of bland, good girl love interest roles um, for years and years and years at Warner's. And it was only when she kind of got out from under her Warner's contract and when she got away or, or loaned out to do other things that she actually got roles that were kind of worthy of her talent. And certainly it was after the Warner's contract, after her groundbreaking legal case, that she had most of her big roles and her two Oscar wins. I mean, it's it's phenomenal when you look at actually her body of work and how she, as Helen said, kind of grew as an actor over time. But the the, the importance of that case and, you know, the way she fought for actors and, and really challenged the studio system. And you think how unthinkable that must have been mm. at the time and kind of, you know, how what it must have been like for her to stand up alone against that and challenge the studios and that, you know, that power dynamic is, is something that still is, is wrangled over today. But like Helen said, it's just, you go, you know, 104, Christ, what an, we always say what an innings, but she Mm. was just one of those people you thought would always, always be around an absolute iconic legend. Mm. Yeah, she's a, a tremendous, tremendous loss. But yes, 104 is one heck of an innings indeed. We also lost some other people uh, recently. Uh, we lost John Saxon, the uh, the great John Saxon, a star of all sorts of genre movies. Uh, you might know him as Lieutenant Thompson in Nightmare on Elm Street 1 and 3. He was in Enter mm-hmm. the Dragon, of course. He was in Battle Beyond the Stars, which is one of my favourite schlocky pieces of sci-fi. Young Jim Cameron worked on that very, very early doors. Um, he was a 27%er, I think, in, in a lot of ways. He, uh, mm. he elevated whatever he was in and he really attacked it and worked with all sorts of incredible people through his long and storied career. And he passed away at the age of 83. Uh, yeah, he, I like. He was Roper, obviously, in in Enter the Dragon. Loved him in that. He mm. could kick some ass. Nancy's dad, of course, was the character that he played in Nightmare on Elm Street, which was uh, which was a lot of fun. And himself in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Uh, mm. His uh, his performance in Beverly Hills Cop Three is probably not one that will be read out in his eulogy, but uh, <laughs> but he was. He was a really really fun, a really really great actor. And again, one of those character actors, as you say, that kind of really sort of brought something to, to every film he was in and kind of elevated them. He was uh, a bit of a scene stealer. He was great. Big fan. He was one of the first people I ever interviewed for Whirly Now. Was he? Yeah. Where was he then? Uh, I think he was at his home talking to me on the phone. But uh, <laughs> but whenever I first started at Empire back in 2001, oh Jesus, uh, I got the Where Are They Now beat assigned to me, yeah. uh, which I just took as an ex- uh, excuse to set up interviews with, with my favourite actors or people who've been in a lot of my favourite films. So I remember speaking, setting up interviews with um, Scott H. Reiniger from Dawn of the Dead and uh, Austin Stoker, who plays Bishop in John Carpenter's Assault in Priestley 13, and Bruce Campbell, even though he was not a Whirly Now candidate, because everyone knows where he is then and now. Um, I set up an interview with Bruce Campbell, and I set up an interview with John Saxon, because I loved John Saxon, and I wanted to speak to him, and he was great. Did you talk to him about Falcon Crest? Uh, Probably. Probably. I remember it being a long interview and I remember it being very, very lovely, but all those tapes uh, have been lost in time like tears in like the tears rain. Like tears in rain. <laughs> yes. so, but he was, he was tremendous, absolutely tremendous. Um, and it's a very, very sad loss as well. And I should mention two people who passed away recently and we, we didn't mention them on last week's show at all. And that's my bad. Um, one is Annie Ross, who is the singer and actor Annie Ross, who passed away recently. And... Uh, Best known for being a singer, but she was also a very, very good actor in the likes of Robert Altman's Shortcuts. Um, she's burned into my brain for 
ever for scaring the shit out of me when I was young because she is Robert Fawn's sister in Superman 3. And you mm-hmm. will know, Len, if you know Superman 3, she is the character who gets transformed into an evil red-eyed robot for fucking no idea why. Uh, God knows why that happens towards the end of that movie. But that robot with its mad hair and its red eyes and the jerky way of moving um, scared the shit out of me and many, many other people. Uh, so very, very sad to see her pass on. Likewise, Danny Hicks. Danny Hicks is one of the stars of Evil Dead 2, my favourite film of all time, also the greatest movie of all time. He plays Jake in that film and uh, he passed away very, very recently. He he announced at the beginning of June that he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and uh, sadly passed on very, very shortly after that. He was also, he was a bit of a Sam Raimi regular. He popped up as well in the likes of Darkman. Um, but yeah, he was just, he's just so much fun in Evil Dead 2. So not that I need an excuse to rewatch Evil Dead 2, but I will be rewatching Evil Dead 2 in Dan Hicks' honour. Uh, RIP to all four of those people who are giants of the industry, each in their own little way. Okay, so shall we now talk about some uh, regular movie news? Um, oh, hey, by the way, cinemas are back. Yeah. Yay. As of today, by the time you're listening to this podcast, people will have actually probably been able to go see films in the cinema. What can we watch, Chris? Uh, well, Picture House and City World are open again, Jimbo, so we'll be, we're going to be getting into that. Um, many of the films we will be reviewing in the review section will be actually on in the cinema. So that's very, very exciting. Mm. Are you guys planning to go back? Are you planning little trips to the, to the, the, the pictures? I've be, I've been already because have you yeah so the um, everyman across the road from me has been open for a couple of weeks they kind of soft opened some of the smaller ones and yeah it's um it, it's exciting and it's weird and you know I'd been planning my first visit back and I'd been fantasizing about it in great detail um and I really really what kind of wanted to hold off for a new movie but obviously with everything getting shifted um a lot of the really big stuff as we know i'm sure we'll talk about tenant later um Mm -hmm. is kind of continually getting pushed back so i went to see Booksmart, and i think they're showing a lot of um recent hits or even you know um stuff from when we were kids i think to get people back in in a bit of a softer way because i think they're aware that people are still a bit nervous but I, you know, this, this, you know, as you say, they're reopening this week and this week also saw the agreement between Universal and AMC about collapsing the theatrical window, um, mm. which is coinciding with the reopening, which I think is, is it's an astonishing kind of development. And I... I'm kind of gobsmacked where they've ended up. And if you'd have asked me when the pandemic started, you know, will anybody ever agree to to do anything with this three-month exclusivity window that um, cinemas and distributors want to have? You know, we saw it with The Irishman and with Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, he couldn't come to an agreement with them because they needed this minimum exclusivity period for theatrical and Universal and AMC have, have got it down to 17 days, which is going to be apparently for all their new movies going forward which is then going to roll out you have to expect to all the other studios which just transforms transforms the landscape really which is you know i don't know if any of you guys ever thought we'd be here this quickly 
and that window would shrink. Is it a blanket 17 days? It's more like that's the absolute bare minimum. Like that's not the norm, is no. it? They've said for big films, they're still looking at a three-month window for those, but they're reserving the right for certain films, yeah, obviously but, based but on the success of Trolls World Tour. that's massive. Yeah. That's massive. Yeah. That, you know, they would never budge on, you know, 90 days. Seven, a minimum of 17 days is extraordinary. Mm. And the fact that AMC, presumably looking at the economics of the situation, has gone, you know, we have to get on board with this because obviously previously they threatened to ban Universal Films yeah. from their theatres. Well, mm. At that point, Universal had said, you know, 17 days, fuck that, we'll just do whatever yeah. hell we want whenever the hell we want it. Yeah. Trolls did really well, so maybe we'll just do day and date and just... Yeah. And AMC were like, absolutely not, you're not doing it, we're not having it. And you can kind of understand their position. It's, yeah. it's existential for them. So, and, But as with Tenet, you know, we're looking at Tenet um, not having a global release warners have, have put, mm. said a very strong hint this week that they're going to be looking at it by territory and i think when cinemas do reopen over the sun, summer i think we're going to be looking at a completely different way of seeing films globally where it opens mm. maybe in europe first if you, if the us is still not able to actually open theaters mm. because of spikes it's it's the most radical shift in but it's heartening decades. that isn't it because it was looking like a possibility that just films weren't going to come out this year because mm. america's in such a state with their sort of infection curve at the moment you've got to think people aren't going to be able to go to the cinema and um, they're not wanting to go international first so i think tenet being the first one to say do you know what we are going to go international first is a really big deal and mm. you might see other films following suit and i think if they hadn't you got to wonder who would have blinked first like would we be coming into december and still having no films mm, like you know yeah. we this is this is actually very very encouraging news and for a film like tenet that's so plot heavy we it's assume. a it's no small thing yeah, yeah. Well, we don't we assume know it's gone. it may, it may have no plot who knows yeah. but uh but you know what i mean like so all the secrets will be out there and you've got to think there's a there's a significant piracy risk there as well so um it is a bold move but you've got to you know Arr. i don't know I, I I'm quite surprised, very pleasantly surprised, but I'm very surprised they chose this course because I did wonder whether they would just suck it up, hold the line, and be like, "No, we're just going to wait until this ends." Yeah. But obviously, if looking at America at the moment, when does it end? You know, does mm -hmm. it end in September? Does it end in December? Does it end next year? When you know, at some point, they've got to go back into theaters. And there's the other part of this that you know they may have to suck up a smaller box office for these films and mm. that may be inevitable in releasing it this way but if the alternative is all the exhibitors go under you know it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship they have to you know respect their partners they have to work with their partners and their partners need films to put on yeah you know, there's only so many times you can watch 100 percent wolf and they are getting a percentage <laughs> of these vod yes. releases uh, that's yeah. that's a, there's a percentage of that going to the exhibitors um in the hopefully you know, that will hopefully help them through this period. Because it is, you're right, it's an existential threat, not just to the studios, but also to the mm. exhibitors. And it's mm. no good if the studios sit on all their stuff on the basis that it might make 200 million less than normal. If that means there's no cinemas to release it in when, you know, the, the infection curve is back under control, we hope, 100%. very soon. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that these are, these are encouraging moves, actually. And I wouldn't usually say that about a 17-day release window mm. um, but I think in in terms of responding to the situation I think that's exactly the right thing to do and I imagine that both parties will be very much considering this as a as a temporary measure as a toe in the water measure and it may well change in future but it's uh, yeah, it's like um, it's when start. English and German soldiers used to play football on Christmas Day uh, in no man's <laughs> land it feels a little bit like this that <laughs> <You know>? yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I don't know. It feels. I was reading stuff yesterday about how AMC controlled twenty percent of the the market in the states. Mm, so is everyone going to follow suit, and what's going to happen with that? Mm. Uh, the tenant thing feels mind blowing to me. You know, mm. the, the the idea that we're going to get to see it first is only right and proper because we're the best. But <laughs> um, I don't. I don't know. It's just I, Terry. You've been to cinema. How how has it been for you? Did you did you mask up? Uh, did you have to wear the same full body suit that you wore during the slime along screening of oh Ghostbusters that we did at no, Empire Live? I should have done though, just to like freak everybody the fuck out. Um, or you went to the, uh, the MPS of uh, of Gaspar Noé's Love. Uh, oh, no, oh no, Chris. What? What? The 4DX screening. So it was... Um, <laughs> so bearing in mind, I went back to an everyman, right? So it's, it's not necessarily like your traditional multiplex. So the seats are much further apart anyway. It, it, it wasn't that busy. I presume when it is busy, they'll miss certain seats out. I've spoken to people um, who work for um, exhibitors and they've said essentially it's selling a proportion of the ticket so that there's definitely enough social distancing between everybody. Um, and it was just, you know, there's hand sanitizing and all of that, but it isn't that different. I mean, I don't know if you guys have been to restaurants yet and it's it's very similar, which is it's yeah, kind of, it's it's a slightly weird version of, of what it is normally. But I've been speaking to a lot of people on Twitter who still say how nervous they are about, about going back. And I think a lot of people won't go back until the big you know for something big I think it's going to be which one big new film is going to get them back in the Mm. cinema scene See, that's interesting because we've, we've been talking about our role in this in terms of, you know, are, are we, do we feel safe telling people to go back to the cinema? Mm. Uh, you know, we, that's a debate that could rage forever. But it, it is interesting because I think the films that are on cinemas right now, and this is, you know, no disrespect whatsoever to the films that are opening this weekend. It's tremendous the films that are opening this weekend in cinemas. I hope, I hope to be able to go to see something this weekend. Um, I was, I was looking at, um, the, one of my local cinemas, which is the, uh, Cineworld in, in, in Greenwich, the O2, and, and um, I just, I'm tickled by the idea of the last film I saw, the last film I paid to see in a in a, in a cinema was Finn Diesel's Bloodshot, and that is also showing at the Cineworld <laughs> in O2. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if I should just like bookend it, <gasps> yes. bookend the pandemic with with Finn Diesel in Bloodshot, and then just kind of like that's it, done, take rip the plaster off, and then start start afresh. I didn't see Bloodshot, so I would be super up for that because, you know, I, I feel like I've missed out on one of the great cinematic moments of 2020. You really did. You really well, did. Also, I've forgotten the film completely. But, um, a cinematic moment. <laughs> but these films, the films are open this weekend. So, Russell Crowe and Unhinged, uh, Evergreen in Proxima, Summerland with Gemma Arterton, films like that, they're not going to pack cinemas out and no. they wouldn't do it at the best of times so actually probably you're weirdly safer going to see those this weekend or seeing one of the many films that have been reissued so Back to the Future Batman Begins Black Panther Bohemian Rhapsody Empire Strikes Back 2001 Space Odyssey Jojo Rabbit all these films are going to be reissued and are, are back in cinemas this weekend around the country whether it's at Everyman or Showcase or I'm not sure about Odeon actually I was looking to see whether Odeon have reopened I'm not sure they have uh, Cineworld and Picture House are the four that I'm aware of uh, opening and there's obviously independence are beginning to reopen as well but you're probably safer going to one of those movies than you are going to Tenet in a few weeks time which is going to be rammed with people <laughs> you know and then do they all wear masks are they all actually observing social distancing you know mm. is, does the ticketing system set you next to people you know or you know some rando who's you know been licking COVID just before he comes in 
So, you know, I, I, I'm still on the fence about stuff like that. Yeah, we have to hope that everybody's being responsible about this. I mean, it does sound like, uh, in terms of the tenant release, um, it's uh, the 26th of August here, mm-hmm. Canada on the 27th, um, parts of the US on September 2nd. So parts of the US where Warner Brothers think that the situation is somehow under control on September 2nd, but not other parts. Honestly, it could be a red-blue divide down the country. Um, and then we're still waiting for you know China, Brazil, and other countries to, to kind of announce. So it could end up being a lot of the usual markets, but it w- definitely won't be everywhere, it sounds like. Yeah, I'm curious as to whether the other films and the other studios will follow suit now that it's been announced, or we'll wait and see what the box office returns are. Um, yeah, I, I'm fascinated mm-hmm. to see how this plays out. Because a lot of films like, oh no, this is confirmed. It's like, well, a lot of films aren't so much confirmed as no one has said they're not they're on. Not. They're just, mm-hmm. they're still in the holding places they've been in all along and no one said differently. But that doesn't mean that's when they're coming out. So <sighs> it is very uncertain times. Yeah. Uh, anything else happened this week? Any bits of casting news? Any bits of uh, other release date shenanigans? What was happening? Did anything come out of Comic-Con of any interest or note at all? Well, I, I was um, uh, slightly taken aback, but maybe not surprised um, with what came out of the Justice League panel, which I think was, what, three or four days ago? We were recording this on Thursday. Um, Zach this Snyder was at was Justice obviously- Con. This was his own con. Justice con. <laughs> Release the Snyder con. <laughs> and he, and you know, I think um, Zach Snyder was asked, "Will you be using any um, footage that Joss Whedon shot?" And the quote that's been attributed to him just said, "There would be no chance on earth that I would use a shot that was made prior uh, after I left the movie. I'd destroy the movie. I would set it on fire before I would use a single frame that I did not photograph." <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so that's a no there. I think that's a no. Yeah. I think that's a no. Do you want to read yes. the rest, Helen? Uh, that is a fucking hard fact. I would literally blow that fucking thing up if I thought for a second. Anything you see in this movie, which reminds you of the other theatrical release, which again, famously, I have not, I literally have never seen, would be because that was a thing I had done and he borrowed for whatever that monster was that you guys saw in the theatre. It's not pulling his punches, is he? <laughs> yeah. This, that's interesting, actually. There's the, this is, um, the fact that he hasn't seen Justice League is really interesting to me. And, uh, you know, it kind of ties in with a lot of filmmakers who haven't seen films that cause them either physical or spiritual or emotional pain. So Edgar Wright famously mm. has not seen Ant-Man. Um, William Friedkin has never seen French Connection 2. Hmm. And whenever I did that um, that four-hour interview with him and, and Macquarie in New York a, a few years ago, we were trying to persuade him that it's really good. Like, French Connection 2 is a classic as well. But he was like, nope, nope, no interest in it. No, I will never watch that film. And it's like, hmm. oh, God, okay. All right. But you're missing out. It's really good. I, you know, I, I, I do understand the urge. I really do. Absolutely, yeah. But at the same time, I don't know that you get to not watch it and also talk about it in quite such vociferous terms. That that seems a little much to me. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but you know, he's obviously been through a difficult time, I guess, with it. Um, he also, of course, unveiled uh, footage of Henry Cavill sans moustache, uh, but avec a uh, black <laughs> Superman suit. Uh, so, so that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I went French there, but it just I, seemed I know, appropriate. It's like sans, sans uh, moustache. Yes, uh, yeah, and actually, I quite like the look of that footage, and uh, I yeah, am going to be very, very interested in the four-hour <laughs> Snyder cut when it comes to us next year. On uh, we we don't obviously have HBO Max over here, but an American pickle 
which is the Seth Rogen film that is going to be on HBO Max next week in the States, is getting a theatrical release over here. So I'm wondering if we're going to see <laughs> the Snyder a Cut. Or our theatrical Snyder Cut. I am here for that. I'm going to mask wow. up like a motherfucker. I'm going to be there. I'm going to you know have a cushion from my bum. Uh, my bladder is made of steel. Uh, and I will not be taking a toilet break during that. Four wow. hours. Bring it bladder on. Bring it steel. on. Absolutely. It's, it's the lesser known spin-off. Um Yeah, no, look, I am I'm, I'm really intrigued to see it. Um But if it doesn't contain a single shot from the terribly, terribly terrible film, then mm. this could be a good film. And that's positive. I mean it, odds aren't massively in its favour, but it could be. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna approach this with a slightly F mind. I do find it hilarious that oh, yes. uh, he's essentially throwing Justice League under the bus to all of the DC fanboys who defend it to death. So it's just like, okay, sure, you know, whatever. Well, they, no, in fairness, like, as someone who's had some discussions with them yes, yes, I over know. time. You have, you have many fine people on both sides, Helen. Uh, they they defend <laughs> Batman v Superman to death. They do not re- defend the theatrical cut of Justice League quite so vociferously. No, they don't. They don't. They would, they would, set, it a, they would set it ablaze. Justice League is worse than Batman versus Superman. Though yes. The gulf is not chasm-like. Mm. I would I agree. I think it's fairly chasm like. I think it's really. I think it's fairly chasm like. Did you like the set? The did you watch the 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 whatever was it director's cut? It was called. What did they call it? The the changed ultimate, version. I think. Of Batman versus ultimate cut. I did. The ultimate cut. I thought it was far superior. Yeah. It is. Far better, superior. Yeah. It is um, slightly better. Yes. Yes. The theatrical <laughs> one is is not not with the good. Uh, it, I mean, yeah, it, but, the plot actually makes sense at that point, but you get a lot of yes. stuff that doesn't. Isn't terribly interesting. Anyway, the Issa Rae and uh, yes. Jordan Peele, Peele thing Ooh, is pretty yes. cool. They're it's adapting the short story Sinkhole, which sounds um, really, really intriguing. So it's about a young family moves into their dream home, which is a, a sinkhole basically in the back garden. Um, but they discover that instead of things disappearing when they put them in there, they come back fixed if they were broken. So they start wondering what that would do to a person. So it sounds really intriguing. It's based on a book called, or a story called I Married a Monster. Is it called Pet Cemetery by Stephen King? Is that, is that, is that the book it's based on? Yeah. No, it is not. It's Lane and Poe's short story sinkhole. So uh, it, it, I, don't okay. think, I don't think it's necessarily quite as simple as they come back cursed. I think it's got more going on than that. Hey, Helen, remember a couple of weeks ago for one of your film facts, you deployed a fact about uh, Scotty Bowers, who was a yeah. uh, a jobbing uh, actor um, uh, who was a bisexual a male hustler and arranged lots of dates for closeted gay Hollywood stars from the 1940s until mm-hmm. the 1980s, and yep. whose uh, story was told in the, his book, Full Service, My Adventures in Hollywood and the Secret Sex Lives of the Stars. And it turns out that there's going to be a film based not necessarily on that book, but on Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood, which is a documentary directed by Matt Tiernauer. And uh, Luca Guadagnino is going to direct it, and Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg are going to write the script. This is slightly crazy, isn't it? I mean, um, it, it's an it's a fascinating story. Whether or not you believe it, it's a really fascinating story. Um, but it was just fictionalized like a minute ago in in Ryan Murphy's Hollywood. But it's a fascinating mix of people to adapt it. Like those are not names that you would pull out of a hat for the story. This story somehow, or at least I wouldn't. <laughs> I guess it would depend on how many names were in the hat. No, they're good writers, uh, Rogan and they're Goldberg. Good writers, yeah. So uh, yeah, this could be an interesting tonal 
collision, I think. But yeah, looking forward to, to that and to Sinkhole as well. Finally, some actual casting news and stuff to talk about. But Hollywood, do better. We'll have one more to talk about this time next week. And now it's time to talk about this week's movie releases, some of which you can actually see in a multiplex near you. My God. And, and the first one stars the aforementioned interviewee, Gemma Arterton. It is Summerland. Hell's Bells. Yes, so this comes from the feature debut of, in fact, um, Jessica Swale, uh, who's done a lot of stage work already and viral videos and so on. Um, and it's the story of Je- Gemma Arderton's researcher. Uh, she's called Alice. Um, she lives alone in a cottage by the sea. She is extremely grumpy and hostile to especially the kids who, in fairness, like are basically throwing stuff at her house all the time. They're awful. Um But she's basically forced to take in a young evacuee from London. Um, His name is Frank. He's played by Lucas Bond. And very much against her better judgment, you know, she agrees to take him for a week until they can find somewhere else. And very much against her better judgment begins to kind of bond with him because he is, no pun intended, because he is um, a smart kid. Uh, she, She gets talking about her work despite her desire to be alone, um, because she's basically brokenhearted and, uh, well, just grumpy, uh, she kind of begins to slightly warm to him. So you kind of feel like you know where you're going with this film. And in a lot of ways you do. Um, it is a kind of at the more heart, heartwarming end of the scale, especially by some of the films this week. Um, it is a, uh, a drama that's not a million miles from what we've seen before, but it is still different enough that it is um, that it has a reason to exist. You know, we've seen lots of films about people having romantical problems in wartime, um, but not quite so many about a love affair between two women and not quite so many with a, a child performance, I think, as good as Bond's here. Um, but it's just a, a nice, slightly comforting film, which I think is is not a bad thing right now. And great, great performances, particularly from Arderton, but also from um, Gugu as well. Uh, I think it's a, it's a really... Nicely shot, well made, yes, okay, slightly familiar film, uh, but it kind of scratches an itch right now. Yeah, I thought this was, uh, I thought this was rather lovely, mm. actually. Um, really well acted, well written, uh, very, very promising stuff indeed from Jessica's well mm. behind the camera. I would say, um, and uh, it's it's so nice to see something that's that's you know as as the title suggests. I mean, there are, there, are, there are, there's darkness here, obviously, and there are emotional depths that the, the film goes to. But it is it is a, a, a fairly sunny little picture. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, yes, we gave this one four stars, four stars indeed, and I would say it is worthy. Four stars then for Summerland. Next up is not so much a sunny picture. This was famously actually going to be the first film back in cinemas. Now, it is not. Uh, It is Russell Crowe in Unhinged, or Russell Crowe as Unhinged, because his character isn't named. So I imagine he's just called Jeff Unhinged, and it's a biopic about this guy uh, in a film, Terry, that desperately wants to be falling down. Yeah, I mean, Christ. So you know the poster Christ, Christ. it's always, always a good place to start a review Christ Christ so the poster right for this film says he could happen to anyone Russell Crowe is unhinged and that should tell you a lot about the nuance um, kind of <laughs> evident in this film it follows a very simple idea which is there's a single mother Rachel played by Cara and Pistorius um, she's having a terrible morning running late, dropping her kid off at school. 
she gets fired. She's stuck in traffic in an unidentified city. Um, so it was shot in New Orleans, but it's it's kind of a generic city. He's not named. The city's not named. I'll come on to why they may have done that, but why it doesn't work. But essentially, she ends up stuck behind Russell Crowe. There's a green light. He doesn't move fast enough. She's kind of in a rush. She's in a bad mood. She honks her horn really hard. Um, he has a massive overreaction, asks her to apologise, she won't. And then he basically goes, you're going to learn that your actions have consequences. <laughs> and what then basically happens for 90 minutes is he goes crazy and um, is hell-bent on revenge on both her and her family. Yep. It's extraordinary, this film, in that it's completely unrelenting. Um, it's completely, it's so graphic. There were t- mm. times when I found the violence completely unwatchable that he meets out to women, to kids, like, you know, anybody you might kind of flinch at being hit in the face, they will show you him hitting them in the face. Um, chihuahuas. He steals a chihuahua. He steals this. a chihuahua. <laughs> the, the dialogue is isn't great. It's a screenplay by Carl Ellsworth, um, directed by Derek Bort, who's possibly most famous for the Joneses uh, back in 2010. Oh, but yeah, the, there's narrative contrivances, which just don't make any sense, major plot holes. He survives mm. things that no human being could actually survive. And what I found most frustrating about this film is its lack of sophistication and its lack of any... Um, nuance or subtlety because there probably is something really interesting to be said at this moment in time about isolation, about rage, um, about our lack of kindness to each other. The film doesn't engage with any of that. And so weirdly, it feels kind of, it becomes just a road rage kind of violence porn film. And it doesn't feel like it has anything to say about the world we live in at the moment. And I think they've deliberately chosen it to be an unidentified city. He doesn't get a name. He's just the man. And I think maybe he's meant to be the embodiment of modern rage. And he's completely dehumanised. There are hints, I mean, such cliches, hints about he's been fucked over by women, by his ex-wife and by lawyers, um, but most of all by women. And that's kind of what drives his rage. Um, He's probably lost his job he lost his marriage but none of these things are engaged with at all they're kind of tossed out there as possible justifications but don't really work um to give you any context because you don't learn anything about his character so i just found it a really weird watch because if if you just want a really propulsive fast intense kind of basic thriller then this Mm. might be the film for you but it's so didn't work for me on on so many levels, particularly around storytelling, around characterization, around any of these things. I found it incredibly disappointing and just felt like it, it could have been so much better. And I also think Russell Crowe has made some really interesting choices over the last few years. You know, when you think about True History of the Kelly Gang, when you think about The Loudest Voice where he played Roger Ailes and, mm. you know, was gave this really fascinating portrayal of this guy him being furious and incredibly violent and one note for 90 minutes just didn't do it for me at all. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of struggle to see why he took this on. It's okay as a propulsive kind of slasher thriller. It's fine. But it's so weird that an actor of his calibre is playing this role mm. and isn't really given any chance to give this guy 
anything like depth or shade. And perhaps maybe that's part of the point. Maybe, you know, maybe he shouldn't be given any depth. Maybe he shouldn't be given any shade. Maybe he is this, you know, ultimate manifestation of toxic masculinity and therefore should be, you know, the ultimate deranged psychopath. Um, but yeah, it's such, such a strange choice for him. But I thought there were some decent sequences. So, but, uh, but yeah, otherwise. There's some decent, like, scary bits. It is an effective thriller. There was one jump scare that really got me. Um, but I, I kind of agree with everything Terry said. And, and there's a moment uh, at the end of this film where, where it begins to feel like it's victim blaming in a way that I felt was incredibly uncomfortable. And, you know, again, I think there is something to be said about, you know, being kind to each other. And there is something to be said about, you know, her bad mood at the beginning, you know, fueling this guy's rage. But at the same time, that's not that doesn't make her responsible for the deaths of all these people as he keeps no. kind of throwing at her. And I think the film doesn't deal with that at all. And in fact, that the particular moment I'm thinking of late on makes it kind of seem like it's the film is siding with its bad guy. And and as you know from my Joker rants over the time, like I am not a big fan of that as a as a as an approach. So I just felt uh I just felt again, it is a wasted uh, a wasted opportunity. I think that's exactly the right way to put it. It's um it could have been a lot better than it is. And I do think, I think, you know, Crow is committed and he is pretty scary. Um, and his physicality oh, yeah. is different than yeah. we've seen Massive. from him before. And, you know, it, that works, but it just needed something more to hang that on. He really has maximized Maximus in this one. Mm. He, you know, he's huge <laughs> in this film. And, you know, you don't want to see that guy coming at you with a knife or a fork or a spoon for that matter. Or a mug. <laughs> or a mug or a glass. Or a napkin. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we could be here all day at this rate. Um, so listen, we're all pretty much on the same page about this. Uh, but as Empire, we gave this three stars, which is, of course, a recommendation. Now, I will say we were sent screening links for this. Um, and this is opening it in the cinema. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but on the, um, on the screening link we were sent, it said, watch this on as big a screen as possible. Uh, so maybe it did lose something from being on it. A sizable computer monitor, but still a computer monitor nonetheless. Uh, so perhaps this weekend, go and see it at the cinema and, and let us know if we were if we were wrong and whether there's, there's more intensity from having Russell Crowe pumped into your ears uh, from all, all angles. Uh, but anyway, three stars then for Unhinged. And next up, we have a documentary, a bit of a change of pace. It is The Fight. Hell's Bells. Yes. Yeah, so this is a documentary about the ACLU. So the organization that essentially tries to fight to enforce uh, the Bill of Rights and the American Constitution. It's directed and produced by Eli Dupre, Josh Kriegman, and Elise Steinberg. Um, apologies if I've got any of those names wrong. Um, it also has Kerry Washington, by the way, as a producer. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it's basically about four of the cases that the ACLU has taken against the Trump administration. So they, they, they sort of focus on four different areas um, of the Trump administration's policies. Um, that's separating uh, immigrants from their children. Uh, that is uh, transgender rights in the military, uh, voting rights, uh, and in particular, uh, the, you know, the the attempt to stop people from voting uh, in various parts of the US and in particular in contested states. And finally, reproductive rights as well. So um, whether women seeking an abortion can be prevented from getting one if they also happen to be in, say, uh, the custody of uh, immigration authorities at the time. So it's it's quite a lot to cover. And this is just a tiny, tiny fraction of what the ACLU does. Uh, the film does kind of uh, go off on a tangent at one point to discuss some of their more controversial stuff, which is like, for example, 
fighting for the right of white supremacists, supremacists to march in Charlottesville, as in, yes, that Charlottesville march that led to the death of Heather Hare, um, because that is also part of the right to protest. Um, and, and that was something that the ACLU actually was involved with. Uh, so it doesn't flatten this into just, you know, these are the good guys and Trump are the bad guys, although that is also the, the case. Um, but it, it just gives you a little bit of a look behind the scenes at the extremely unglamorous work that the ACLU does. That This is people in cramped, um, paper-filled, uh, unglamorous offices, much like our own, um, who are basically practicing their speeches in front of the mirror before going to the Supreme Court and trying their best to, you know, make things better and, and help the US live up to its own ideals. Uh, so as a lawyer, obviously, and as someone with an interest in American civil rights law, I think it's fascinating. Um, if you don't have either of those things, this is probably not the film for you. Um, but it is a really good look at um, people trying to do the right thing, I think, and how complicated that can be. And as you know from my many rants about Captain America, that's one of my favorite things. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I thought I thought this was this was actually pretty fascinating. Uh, it's not crazy long, you know. It's not going to sort of outstay its welcome, but it does give you a really good insight into into what's going on. And we gave this four stars. I mean, I I I enjoyed this. It's incredibly powerful. There's nothing really radical about the way it's made or no. the way they tell the stories. Um, but it's just an incredibly, I suppose, honest and intimate look at what the ACLU do. Because I suppose they're kind of a faceless organization who are involved in some of the most important, you know, legislation against the president. You know, they're, they're the people who are in some cases, trying to single-handedly uphold core civil rights in America. And, and there's one point where they say, you know, it's just us on two and a half floors in an office building. And you realize yep. that they're just a group of normal people who have families, who have their own lives, who are just driven by a need to make the world better. So I think it's it's a really interesting snapshot and kind of documentation of this time because since Trump's come into power as Helen said you know there's it's ch challenges to civil rights like we've never seen before in a really short space of time and you get the sense through these four cases of of just kind of how serious the situation has been in in the US I thought the the kind of they dabbled in the stuff about their more the more contentious stuff as Helen said and that was mm. really interesting to me about you know that they did campaign for the right for as we said the um uh white supremacists to be able to march and that kind of how that sits with the, their other work and they kind of I would probably have liked a little bit more of that um but yeah mm. I thought it was I thought it was incredibly incredibly powerful Indeed. Four stars then for the fight. And and next up we have Evergreen uh, in space, but not really in Proxima. Terry. Yes, this is the space film, not in space. Um, so <laughs> I I read the Empire review of this. I'm just going to kick this off by saying, and um, uh, John Nugent <laughs> not was, on my watch. John John Nugent was talking about the glom space mom. So we should say, you know, that there has been a well. I, I suppose it's not even recent because people are including gravity. People are talking about Lucy in the sky. Um, but actually, because we on the other hand we have sad space dad who's there with his glom space mom. <laughs> and that's the likes of Ad Astra and Interstellar. And this film kind of shares some DNA with those movies. But, you know, Lucy in the Sky, for example, that's about a woman wearing an adult nappy and driving across the country to 
um, you know, potentially shoot her love rival. It's definitely got nothing to do with that. So I think these films, you know, women in space, they kind of all get lumped in together. I think this is phenomenal. I find it incredibly moving. Now, this comes from French filmmaker Alice Winkor. And it opens um, when engineer and astronaut Sarah, who, as you said, is played by Eva Green, she's just been chosen to spend a year in space on the last mission um, for Mars. And it shows her training for this mission while simultaneously trying to navigate her relationship with her eight-year-old daughter, Stella. Stella is played by Zelie Boulan. She is absolutely astonishing and really at the heart of this film it's the relationship between the mother and the daughter that I found incredibly moving incredibly poetic and it's really interesting because in many respects it isn't in space and it's about the preparation it's about how arduous it sorry my telly just turned itself on and I'm the only person mm. in the house uh, Russell Crowe's got the remote that is weird. Oh no. he's unhinged <laughs> that was a that was really weird um so as we say, it's not set in space and it deals really with the kind of details and nuts and bolts of preparing for a mission like this. And it's all in kind of, you know, she she puts on the gear and it, you can feel the weight of it. And it's all in the detail of how you prepare for something like this. But at the same time, there's a narration of these letters she's writing to her daughter, a daughter she knows she's going to have to to leave behind. And it's this interesting kind of mix of those worlds. And what I loved is it wasn't setting up this kind of false dichotomy of my career and my relationship with my daughter, which I think these films so often do. It's it's kind of really it's about the difficulties of a woman moving through any male dominated environment. Matt Dillon plays um, an astronaut colleague who is a little bit sexist. At one point, he says he's happy to have a French woman on the on the crew because he hears mm. they're good cooks. Um, and it, but it's 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 not about oh, do I have to choose my career or do I have to choose my relationship with my daughter? It's just a beautiful portrait of their changing relationship and. She, I have to say, and I've said it, but Zelie Boulant is astonishing. She's eight years old. She's um, got this poignancy about her. And I love the fact the film showed a lot of it from her um, point of view. So a lot of it's shot at her height. It shows her under tables or sat alone while the grown-ups are talking about space and having these conversations about life and death in space. And it, it was just a, a really beautiful way to show her perspective um, in in a really light way without being too heavy-handed. It looks absolutely gorgeous. The cinematography is by George Leptois. And it kind of mixes this cold clinical world of, of space and, and the detail of that with this almost kind of home video. It looks almost handheld in places when she's got this relationship with her daughter and when they spend time together. I found it incredibly moving in a way that, for example, I didn't find Ad Astra. I think this stands apart and by itself in that clutch of movies that it's kind of been dragged to sit alongside. So I loved this film and I think the the intimacy and the heart and it's Eva Green at her absolute best. She's understated, she's insular. We're used to a very different kind of character from her, especially of late, but I think she's just extraordinary in this. Um, it's beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful film. So do we need basically happy space saddies next? Like, is that the logical <laughs> next step? I think so. That's the evolution, right? 
I think What's so. Sadie again? I, I don't I'm remember. Ben tried to explain it and I didn't understand him. I'm too old. A sad, yeah. you're like a sad daddy. Like, no, I think a zaddy is like a daddy, but more so. Oh. Is a is a sad, I thought a sadi was a sexy daddy. No. Yes, I think like so. A, but like, but a like daddy a, like is a, a sexy daddy. I don't oh. think so. See, I'm here for the sad daddies. <laughs> Always. There's quite a sad daddy in this, isn't there? Her partner's quite a you know sad. He's he's a lovely lovely guy, and they're very modern relationship, and they're you know they're they're estranged, but you know they even talk about you know they're they're co-parenting in such a, a lovely modern way. Um, I thought, yeah, I'm I'm with you, Terry. In this, I thought this was absolutely terrific. Um, and it's interesting though because you know people might hear Evergreen astronaut space they might think oh it's a thriller or something like that and they might go yeah the visuals are great but it's not a space sci-fi movie in any way uh so don't go expecting your eyes to be ripped out of your sockets um but yeah i thought it was absolutely wonderful and uh Celie boulon is tremendous we gave it four stars so if you want to see evergreen being a glum space mum, um hmm. then do go check it out if you really want some entertainment though then I would heartily recommend if you ever bump into Terry on the street, try and get her to pronounce some French names. <laughs> Very fun. The things that you've heard this podcast were not the things that she said initially. I'm going to say that. <laughs> they did not teach French on my council estate. Like, what's a girl to do? Four stars then for Proxima. It is uh, fantastic. And uh, and rounding out this week is a horror film. Uh, it is called The Vigil. It's from Blumhouse. And if you think that means it takes place largely in one location, then you are absolutely right. But nevertheless, it's worth your time, in my opinion. What about your opinion? James Dyer, who is actually still here. <laughs> I am. Sorry, I drifted off for a while there, but I have just woken up. Um, yes, so this is the the sort of uh, feature debut of writer-director Keith Thomas, who decided to make good use of the masters in theology he got at rabbinical school uh, to create this sort of low-budget, single sort of uh, uh, single location horror uh, set in Jewish folklore. So it centers around the character Yaakov, who's played very well by Dave Davis, uh, who is a man from a Hasidic community in Brooklyn who has recently left that community uh, due to a tragedy that happened in his life and uh, he's finding it quite difficult to adjust to sort of mainstream life having been in that very sort of closed insular community. Um, he is meeting other people, he's finding out how to interact with them, he's trying to get a job so he's having some financial difficulties as well. Now one evening after a dinner party he is re- he is approached by a member of that community who he previously knew, uh, played by, play by Minash Lustig, uh, Reb Shulam his name is, uh, and offers him a job. He offers him to pay some money to act as Shoma. So the Shoma is the cat is uh, in Jewish belief when someone dies, someone watches over the body until it can be taken and then buried. Uh, and that person is the Shoma. They essentially hold vigil over the body. So he's asked to just look over this dead body throughout the night, just until morning, just for five hours. What could possibly go wrong, right? Um, so he goes over to the house. The widow of the deceased man, uh, Mrs. Litvak, is there. She obviously tries to send him off in with cryptic warnings that he doesn't heed, but he sits in to begin his vigil, and this begins the haunting. So it turns out that the house is, uh, or there is a, an entity, a demonic entity at work, and many, many creepy happensings. Happensings? happensings. Creepy happenings. No happensings. Creepy happenings happen. Um... I really, really like this, and I think for a number of reasons. It, it's like it's n- this is not by any stretch a groundbreaking haunting film. Like it's just like one guy, creepy haunted house stuff happens. A mixture of sort of spine chilling, sort of 
goosebumpy atmospheric stuff and obligatory jump scares as well. So nothing sort of groundbreaking, but I really like the fact that it's rooted in quite interesting Jewish mythology. And it's funny, like a lot of the discussions of this film have talked about, ah, yes, there is a, a spirit known as a dibuk, uh there, which of course that is the incorrect Jewish spirit. It is in fact a mazik, which is a completely different Jewish ghost. Oh, just God. You know, to, to... He's James explaining this even now. But yeah, no, I, I really like this. And he's drawn on his, uh, on, his, on his sort of rabbinical upbringing to sort of really sort of get into the, the, the nuts of this but um i um i liked the kind of the the parallels here so there's a lot of internal exterior demons here so he himself yakov uh, has suffered this trauma and i think he's torturing himself over that the uh, the guy who died uh, is a um, is a Holocaust survivor, so there's lots of uh, of that in there as well. So there's a lot of exploration of their interior, their inner demons, and then of course this physical, actual mazic demon that's in the house as well. Uh, and there's a good use of technology in there. Again, not a new thing to have creepy phone calls, creepy TV messages, but it's really, really well done. And I I, I found myself really sort of mesmerised by this. And he's invented uh, Thomas has invented a lot of the mythology around this spirit, which I think was absolutely the way to go because he comes up with some kind of interesting ideas but uh, yeah didn't know what this is hadn't heard an awful lot about it but found it quite captivating i thought it was a very taut very tight very effective little horror film uh, made for very very little money mm-hmm. yeah absolutely blumhouse do it again maybe an over-reliance on some jump scares and ominous noises in the soundtrack and you know and 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 the score is a bit of a you know telegraphs things a little bit too much for, for my taste but um i really like the direction that this, this thing went uh, in, uh, it doesn't always go where you think it's going to go. And uh, yeah, I thought it was it was pretty terrific, actually. But I, li- I like horror films that use a lot of kind of religious, you know, imagery and sort of the, the sort of the, um, uh, the sort of mysticism around religions that add a layer of creepiness to it. And you see that a lot with with Christianity and paganism and whatnot. But but actually to see it here, like there's a lot of Yiddish in this film. There's a lot of, uh, mm. uh, you know, it, you feel really sort of immersed in that culture. Yeah. And I think he's, he's done a really good job with that. Yeah. Really good job with it. It feels really different in that way. Yeah, because if you think about it, you know, we are used to seeing Catholicism, especially mm-hmm. used in horrors and thrillers, stigmata, one of the greatest films ever made. Um, but I think... Uh, Not even Rupert Wainwright would claim that, would he? Fucking love that film. But I think, as you said, having drawing on Jewish heritage and, and the iconography and all of that, it, it feels like an unexplored world in many respects within horror. Um, I agree with Chris that there was a slight over-reliance on, on jump scares to the point where it kind of... it They weren't making me jump or be scared um, towards the end. Um, but I think I have to say Lynn Cohen is just mm-hmm. incredible. Like she has this otherworldliness to her. I mean, she's an incredible actor anyway, but I think she's just remarkable in this, as, you know, as, as a woman who's grieving, but is also, you know, struggling with dementia. And I, I think she is absolutely brilliant. And as you said, he is he is a real real talent um and the score i have to say the score gave me nightmares last night um Mm -hmm. and there were times where i had to mute it because it's so intense and overwhelming at points that i was like i found it really really hard to to listen to but um in in many respects that's that's just because of how powerful i think it is um yeah I, i pretty much agree with everything both of you said 
Empire agreed with us as well. <laughs> you let it know the, em- the entity known as Empire agreed with us. Uh, four stars. We gave this one four stars. Uh, so it's a hell of a week. Uh, even we even gave the Russell Crowe movie, which he shouts to people three stars. Uh, so you know, although we did not necessarily agree with that but uh, do check it out on the big screen as I said Uh, and on that note that is it for this week's Empire Podcast join us next week for more film related fun we'll be joined by all being well because it hasn't happened yet Shailene Woodley star of Endings Beginnings as well as someone that I'm not going to announce in case it doesn't happen Uh, but it's going to be exciting if it does I should mention as well that there is movement on the spoiler special front also Uh, so uh, our (laughs) two two and a half hour first part of our Hamilton (laughs) spoiler special (laughs) is up now for spoiler special subscribers including um, a unique take on one of the the hit numbers from that musical. Uh, the second part, because basically we, we rabbited it on so long about the, uh, the the show that we've had to split it into two parts, will be up next week. And uh, also in terms of spoiler specials, our Edgar Wright, Scott Pilgrim versus the World spoiler special to coincide with his 10th anniversary will be up in early August. Uh, and we're also doing Pitch Black with the that film's writer-director David Toohey and Flash Gordon with that film's director, Mike Hodges. They will be three spoiler specials heading your way this month alone. So if you don't already subscribe to our spoiler special podcast channel, then go to my Twitter, at Chris Hewitt, and find my pinned tweet for details, or just go to glow.fm forward slash empire film. But until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Terry White. Ta-ra. Ta-ra. It is goodbye from James Dyer. Goodbye, Chris. Is that it? Oh, none the rest of us. Oh, okay, fine. No, Classic. just Chris. Yeah. That's it. Absolutely outrageous. Toxic masculinity right there. <laughs> Am I right? Patriarchy, he could happen to any effect. of us. He could happen to any of us. <laughs> James Tyre could happen I mean, to I'm recording of Pilot of with Terry literally tomorrow morning, so. <laughs> Are you though? Are you though? Let's see about that. It is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. There we go. Uh, and it's goodbye from me. I am off to prepare for my walk-on role as slightly handsome man. I'm degrading myself. Um, <laughs> handsome man who man who is smoulderingly handsome, but doesn't quite know it in Terry White's Coming Undone. In my screenplay, it just says terrible. Bangly bang. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. See you next time. Oh, God, I got so much editing with this one. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.